What a great time we had uh, last Thursday night. What a great turnout um, to, uh, I guess you'll call it the gym night we had, just watching your various talents. Uh, I was either reminded or came to understand some great uh, sportsman abilities, sportsman, that's a gender term there, uh, sporting abilities uh, that many of you had, both men and women. And I also got to see some of the abilities you don't have. That was kind of funny, too. Uh, it, was, it was humorous to sit on the side as I just played cards and just watched you guys. But it was a lot of fun to do that. I don't think there were too many injuries. We usually uh, get a few. But uh, if you see someone limping in this morning, that was probably from uh, the gym night. But this Thursday, we'll be over at the Browns uh, for our first swim party of the year. And that doesn't require you to swim. It does require you to eat, though. We will have food uh, starting at 6 p.m. there. And even if you can't make 6, you can come at any time in the evening there. Well, not any time, uh, but within reason. Uh, please come. Bring a friend. Um, a lot of the parking will be over in the side field. So we will help you figure out where to park if you haven't uh, been there before. But that's at 209 Big Maple Drive in Forest. 209 Big Maple. Uh, Christy had already sent out an email uh, with that address. Um, if you can help with food, side items or desserts especially, are always appreciated. And uh, we'll put together a Google Doc is what we're planning to do. We'll send that out uh, to see if you would like to participate. You can sign up there sometime during the week here prior to Thursday. So that'll be, again, this Thursday. That's at 6 p.m. over at the Browns. So please join us. There'll be other swim parties too. If you're out of town or doing something, we have four other swim parties coming this summer, Lord willing. So pray that the weather cooperates with us. There's uh, two uh, items here left for, that were left here on uh, Thursday at the gym night. This one still smells good. So if, you, if this is yours, you can pick that one up, okay? And uh, there's also a nice little charger here as well. So if that's yours or knows who it is, please pick that up and um, we'll get that on its way. Okay, well, that's what we have right now. Uh, open up your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 1. We'll continue our march through this wonderful book um, that uh, Clay chose for us to go through a number of teachers teaching uh, in this letter <clears throat> from Paul to Titus. Uh, hopefully you have a sheet like this. If you don't, uh, I think the leftovers are with Christy in the back there if you need that. But uh, thank you, men, that uh, passed these out this morning. So make sure you have one of those. Okay, the book of Titus. And we're going to be looking at um, several verses from the passage we started with last week. Uh, why don't I read the passage? Let's remind ourselves where we were and where we're going to go this morning. So I'll read it. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And then we'll have a word of prayer. And we'll launch into our our time together this morning. So let's pray, or let's read first. Titus 1, starting at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, 
a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to open your word today, your words, your God-breathed words, your will for our lives. Thank you, Father, for Paul's words to uh, Titus here and the importance of them. I pray we get a grasp of what Paul was getting at, what was so important for the life of your people, for the, the perfection of your people, for the growth and sanctification, for re really you, your will for our lives. So uh, guide and direct our thoughts. Help me to speak these words clearly, and may the Spirit use them to direct and teach us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, we're starting again here in Titus 1, uh, verses 5 through 9, and we're going to be specifically looking at verses 7 through 9 more specifically today, but to think back of what we had looked at, again, looking at your sheet there, you might think, oh, wow, is this like a three-week lesson? Uh, we're doing a lot, a lot of words today, quite verbose, and you'll see why as we get into things. There's a lot of things to cover today. There's a lot of important details that Paul packs in these verses, and that's great. Of course, we, we could spend a week or more on each of those attributes, but writing out some of these things would give you something to look at on your own and your your personal time with the Lord, uh, and, and if, you're, if you're a note-taker, it'll be hard to keep up with some of those things today with all the details, uh, at least if you write as fast as I do, which I end up misspelling more words than spelling right when I'm in a hurry. Uh, so maybe this will help you out, and if, you're, if you've got your pen with you, you can always jot a few things as you need to. But from last week, we saw here in this passage that Paul has left Titus in Crete with some specific instruction, specifically to the ministry of these new believers on this island. Where should Titus start in this ministry? And straight away, his, the highest priority that Paul mentions here is to identify and appoint godly leaders in every city. This would be for the establishing of good, healthy local churches. Healthy local churches start with godly leaders that, are, that meet God's qualifications, that meet his standards. He starts there. If you want a healthy church, you must have healthy, qualified leaders, elders, as it's put here. Um, they would lead God's church. They would lead God's people. It's not their church, it's God's church. And what these leaders are to do in the life of the church is elaborated on further through the letter as our various boundless leaders will be teaching through the summer. And you see here that uh, Paul, Paul gave Titus the uh, responsibility to identify and appoint elders. Now maybe you remember that term from last week, an elder. We look in scripture uh, there's other words that describe this, the function and the responsibility and the title of God's leaders in a local church. We see elder here. We also saw it's also called a pastor shepherd in scripture, a pastor or a shepherd or an overseer. They all describe the same men who lead local churches. 
and an elder, as we saw. I believe that was over there in uh, verse 7, an, el- uh, an overseer. God's steward must be above, above reproach. As God's steward, right? As a steward, he is uh, an individual who manages God's household, God's people, God's church. You know, I think all of us, we, we tend to, if we're leading something or we're in charge of something, we, we feel, I think, in, for, in reasonable ways, a sense of ownership. And there is a, a weight of responsibility we should feel. But, some, but where we go a little wrong, and certainly here in, in, in the leadership of the church, is a, that's not, when a pastor leads a church, these are not his people, they're God's people. He's a steward of these blood-bought individuals that Christ has redeemed, that God has redeemed through the blood of Christ. And therefore, he has this responsibility to care for them and to feed them and to lead them and to protect them, to pastor them, to oversee them. And we'll see some of those responsibilities as well as the qualifications today in how he actually conducts that. So it's God's church where the Lord himself is the great shepherd and these pastors and these elders are the under-shepherds under the responsibility under Christ, the lordship of Christ, to lead his body. So Paul here gives much detail on the qualifications that Titus must look for in selecting these leaders. There's no ambiguity here. I mean, you look, there's a lot of detail to the requirements. Above reproach seems like that would be enough to be, as we looked last week, to be blameless. Or if there's an accusation, it doesn't stick. They're above reproach. They, they're not perfect, but they consistently lead and love and live the godly life, a Christ-centered life. They have spiritual maturity, something we're all called to be. We're always to be progressing in sanctification and our growth. That's why we're here. That's why we help each other. You'll learn uh, from the pulpit today, if you haven't already, if you weren't in the early service, how to grow in the Christian life and how to help others grow. So we're all heading towards that same direction, above reproach, but an elder must be above reproach. They must be there already. These are the ones that are selected and that are set apart and qualified above reproach. But Paul gives much more details than above reproach. He lists them out in various qualifications here, so there's no mistake in this is what it means. And the details are important. There are various, a list of various character qualities, and then we'll see some responsibilities as well. The first one we looked at last week, just as a reminder, we looked at family character. Uh, an elder must be the husband of one wife, you'll see there in verse 6, the husband of one wife. And this, if you remember, it means a one-woman man, fully devoted to his one wife, no rival loves with others. Committed, loyal, undivided love for his wife. It's a model marriage. Not perfect, but it's model, a model marriage. And then you see there where we didn't get to last week, he, it's also, a, as far as a family qualification, it's important how he manages his household with his children. With his children. Look there in verse 6. And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, I'm reading from 
um, the ESV, which says his children are believers. You may have a different word there for believers, and this is important. Is it a requirement that an elder's children be born-again believers? Is that what it's saying here? At its, face, it's, at its face, it seems to appear that way here. Well, if you go to the Greek word here for believers, you go back to the meaning. Some translations will state this word differently. Instead, they use the word faithful. Faithful. In fact, as a cross-reference, you could go to 1 Corinthians 4.2. And it says this. You'll, you'll, you'll be re reminded of it as I read it. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful or trustworthy. That's that same Greek word, but it's translated differently in the context. And I believe it would be better translated as faithful here in this context in Titus. And if that's true, you would say that his children are faithful. That would be the requirement here. This seems to flow naturally with the other requirements of the children here, okay? If you look there uh, at 6b, uh, that middle part of that verse, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. It's talking about their behavior, not their status, believer or unbeliever, but their behavior, all right? Debauchery here is, or it could say dissipation in the translation of your scriptures. It's indulgent, wasteful living. Willful, reckless kind of decisions, prodigality, if that's a word, uh, extreme indulgence and sensuality. It's basically a person with no moral compass, wild, okay, out on the deep end in their behavior. Insubordination, it's just rebellion. They're disobedient to authority, undisciplined, they disregard restraint, and it's essentially a a defiant attitude to any God-ordained authority in that individual's life. What are we talking about here? Someone who's in debauchery and subordination are just, they're, they're children who are out of control. Out of control. It doesn't mean a, a child has always understands authority perfectly or they never sin uh, as a, a child of a pastor. That's not what it's saying here. But it's talking about this off-on-a-deep-end, out-of-control type of behavior. And again, here we're talking about a faithfulness. So it's not about the status, believer or unbeliever, although a godly father, a godly elder will lead their children to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then that's in God's hands. God is the one who saves, but they must be committed. But the behavior of their children is important. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 also just really supports this interpretation of faithful for these children? It says there in verse 4 of 1 Timothy 3, this is the parallel passage of the qualifications of an elder, 1 Timothy 3. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Submissive, again, speaking of behavior. So the father here, the qualified elder, teaches and trains and cares and leads his children with corrective and loving discipline. He manages his home. And his children's faithfulness is a demonstration of, by way of how they respond to their father's leadership. Why are these family qualifications, the home life, why, why are they important? Why is Paul listing that? A one-woman man, you know, the, the, the response of their children? Because a man's leadership 
of the home, scripturally, it says, is the proving ground for this man's ability to lead God's church, the family of God. It's the proving ground. That same parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, he must manage his own household well, verse 4, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So many in the church today, in churches around America and the world, they look for business success, how they've done in the corporate world. If you can get results there, you can get results here. If you brought in people there in the business world, you can bring in people there. Uh, if you can set a vision for our church in the business world, you can set a vision for our church. That's not the place God looks here. He doesn't look at business. He looks at the family. This is the place where God places his attention. If you can't, well, I'll tell you, I've been in the business world a long time. 1985, do the math. <laughs> How long has that been? I'm an engineer. 36 years, I think. <laughs> uh, it's been a long time. Uh, I've seen people great in business, leaders of companies. I've seen them come and go in various ways, and their family is an absolute wreck. And, uh, yeah, many of those people are unsaved, but they've devoted themselves to business. That's, this is where God looks. He doesn't look at these successes over here. He looks at the family, how he manages the family. And that's where the church must look as well. Very, very important. God looks at the family. So that kind of leaves off where we were last week. Now you see, uh, you know, starting there in verse, in verse 7, a remaining list of qualifications, these personal character traits, and then some responsibilities. What I want you to look at when we go through each of these, and we can't spend much time on each of them, but as we look at these different personal character qualities that are required of an elder, I want you to look at these and say, you know what? This is what God calls of me as well. This is a responsibility for me in my Christian growth and my development as a believer. And you'll see as we go point by point, I give you a little bit of description there that you can look at in your own devotional time. And you'll also see a, a Bible verse that I just chose that would help describe this responsibility for all believers. It's not just an elder, but again, an elder a pastor, an overseer to be qualified, must be practicing these things. They must be there already. But we all want to aspire to be like Christ, and therefore this is something we can all look to do ourselves. So, looking there, uh, what we're looking at is further qualifications of elders, and we're going to start as we go along here in verse 7. An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Let's start there with arrogant. You might have the word self-willed in your Bible. This literally means self-pleasing. I'll just read there what you have there. This man is consumed with pleasing himself and getting his own way, and he therefore persists in maintaining his own opinion while disregarding the views of others. He takes a more of a contrarian stance to assert himself and exercise his power over others. He does not admit that he is wrong. So what do we need here? We need an elder that is a good listener. It's not my way or the highway kind of leadership, right? He must work with a plurality of elders. Remember, Paul assigned Titus to, to identify and assign a plurality at every local church. So they must work together with other believers and other elders. And, of course, the focus is on God's agenda and not their own. 
Look at the second one, quick-tempered. A quick-tempered man. These are, again, these are, these are must-not qualifications as we're looking. He must not be arrogant in this list of these five here, these first five qualifications, character qualifications. These are things we must not have. He must not be quick-tempered. A quick-tempered man exercises sinful anger. And this exhibits, exhibits itself with a temper that explodes without warning. These blow-ups will occur in situations when he doesn't get his way or in undesirable circumstances. So an, ultra, uh, uh, an elder must control his emotions in difficult circumstances, in trying uh, circumstances, and not react with impulsive anger. And we know there is a righteous anger, Ephesians tells us, and that's where he camps out. He, he, he focuses on a righteous anger rather than a sinful one. Number three, he must not be a drunkard. An elder must not be given to or dependent on alcohol, which would compromise the sober-mindedness or temperance, right? He must have a clear mind and a control of his senses. Now, we've mentioned to you before, and it's worth spending a minute or two here, that there is no prohibition to alcohol consumption in the scriptures. The prohibition is to drunkenness, not its consumption. Now, I can't say that without qualifying that to some degree, okay, without, without giving it more details. Uh, God's word doesn't need qualification, but in our culture, I think you understand. We have to talk a little bit about that. Um, the scriptures are filled with warnings in regards to alcohol's consumption and its abuse and the potential for further sin. But I have to, I, I, I can't sit, stand here and bind your conscience to a command that God doesn't give. You must abstain. That's not the scriptural command. But at the same time, I can't trivialize the warnings that scripture provides us on the pitfalls of alcohol. My, my mother was an alcoholic. It was very difficult during those years where she struggled with alcohol. And praise God, she came to know Christ. Praise God, she hasn't drank alcohol for probably 30 years now. And we praise the Lord for that. But I've seen firsthand the devastation that can bring. Many elders choose to abstain fully from alcohol to support a lifestyle that is seen as above reproach. And that's the way the TBC elders, that's the position they take here, is total abstinence. I don't know what you would think of if uh, we went to Pastor Farrell's home and he cracked open a cold one, and we're just kind of like, oh, that's interesting. And uh, he chooses not to do that, but just to be above reproach. And, of course, you have to think as well. Consider your own authority figures in your life. It's important. It's just not like, well, I have this liberty, so I just do it. You have to think of your family. If you're still in the authority of the family, that trumps your liberty if they say you must abstain. The Liberty Way, if you've signed off on, I will follow these guidelines, these, this structure of how to conduct myself at Liberty, um, when you go there, well, then you're saying, I will play by their rules. If you don't want to do that, then, then go to a different school. But that is an authority, a place of authority there. You also need to consider the weaker, weaker brother before exercising any Christian liberty. So, I would recommend you to Clay's teaching on this topic when he covered Ephesians 5.18. We should have that recorded and on the website. So if you want more information on that, please uh, jump into that or talk to me later. Okay, continue with the not, uh, the, the must not qualifications of personal character. Look there 
at the next one, violent. Violent. He must not be violent or pugnacious. This is an interesting word here, too. It, it literally means a bruiser. <laughs> a bruiser or someone ready for a blow. Uh, this uh, is a, just a contentious, quarrelsome person that uh, is just, his, their, their default is to go physically fight or be verbally combative. Uh, you can see how that would be difficult to lead a church with that type of personality. An elder must not be abrasive. They can't have a bullying spirit to get their way. Uh, they can't exercise cruelty to manipulate and to get decisions to, to fall on their behalf. Rather, he needs to be peaceable and gentle and uh, avoid uh, fighting of all kinds. And the last must not uh, character trait is greedy for gain or your Bible may say, fond of sordid gain. This is a person who greedily pursues financial gain through dishonest methods and thus lacks integrity and, and trustworthiness. So similar to alcohol, um, you know, it's important here to understand that money itself is not sinful. We know that, right? It's the love of money that is. And an elder has to be above board here in his financial dealings, forthright, in his financial affairs, not, not kind of a shady side thing where the trunk's open after the service selling, you know, microwave ovens or whatever out of their truck. Uh, you know, you know there's this always a side hustle that's always kind of competing for where their heart really is and where they're, they're plugging in their, their resources and their loves and their devotion. Obviously, they have to provide for their family and they need to do things to do so. But here's this inordinate love of money. And of course, that can lead to temptations like taking advantage of others financially or even temptations to embezzle. So uh, greedy for gain is uh, not to be part of the elder's life. Now let's jump over here to other personal character traits, the must-have qualifications. These are things a, 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 an elder must have in their life to be qualified to lead God's church. And the first one, okay, let's read verse 8 there first. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Hospitable. He must be hospitable. The literal word means here a lover of strangers. A lover of strangers. A genuine interest and concern for others when first introduced by them. A desire to meet their needs, sharing of resources, opening one's home to them. An elder has an affectionate concern for others and those whom they don't know. Visitors to our church, for instance, and he helps them feel welcome, comfortable. We're not talking a personality-driven thing here where you have to be an extrovert or you cannot be an introvert or you, you have to be outgoing or a certain charisma about your personality. No. This is people that care for others and they're willing to be inconvenienced for the greater good of loving them. And we know that if you've served others, and I trust you are working at that, and you're, 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 you're focusing on serving other people in their body, you know it's rarely convenient. It requires your time, your resources, your energy, but a hospitable person arranges his life for the sake of others. Makes sense, right? What a great attribute to have for a pastor. You see, another thing he must have, he must be a lover of good a lover of good. He desires and practices what's intrinsically good, wholesome, virtuous. 
An elder must have a level of self-control, and we'll see that here in a moment, so that they're filling their minds with good and godly things, wholesome things, virtuous things. You know this well. You are what you think, right? And an elder's camped out in God's truth, and he's not um, focused on things that would distract him from this lover of good things, right? So he's focused on his heart attitude and loves that which is good, and that in turn will be displayed in how he cares and looks for those things to be developed in other people. It says here he also must be self-controlled, or your scriptures may say sensible or prudent. This actually means the word sober-minded. To have a sound mind resulting in the ability to act sensibly and wisely, using good judgment. So there's not an impulsiveness, there's not these extremes of fluctuating emotions up and down. We all have emotions, we all have our, our times and seasons where there's great difficulty, but you can't have a pastor in a funk for months or years on end. That may be something a younger believer is working on in their growth and godliness, and we all have those times. But a pastor needs to have self-control. His mind is sensible. It's thoughtful. And therefore, um, he can therefore exercise uh, discretion and discernment in his life without this emotional roller coaster. You see, number four there, as we just keep marching, okay, is he must be upright. An elder must be upright or just. He's fair. He's equitable in his treatment of others. He's committed to doing what's right in other people's lives according to God's standards. So a just elder doesn't favor or disfavor anybody based on their status in their life, their ethnicity, their background. You know, like any human being, we have an affinity towards certain people. Um, whenever I meet you and I find out you're from Ohio, I'm like, yay, go Buckeyes. And uh, of course, most of you are from Ohio, and I say, yay, I still love you. But, uh, you know, there's that affinity there. That's, yeah, that's going to happen. You know, when Pastor finds someone that hunts and loves to kill things out in the woods, well, hey, he's just like, his eyes light up. But, you know, you have to have this attention and care for the entire body and not just be selective in whom you love. So an upright or just person is looking equitably towards the body and, um, and look to... Uh, not to be unloving or unrighteous in the treatment of others. Uh, two more here. Uh, the elder must be holy or devout. One whose lifestyle is holy and righteous, devoutly committed to pleasing God with a separation from sinful, evil behaviors. So an elder has a close walk with God. That's a reasonable expectation, and there's a sanctified lifestyle that is evident that comes from that. He must be holy. He must be devout. So an elder's life should not have significant shortfalls of unrighteous activity or behaviors, not enslaving sins that they just can never, ever get over. Are elders challenged by sin? Absolutely, they're challenged by sin. But it can't be dominating sins, or if they become in that direction, they learn to repent. They learn to work with their other elders. They, they are transparently allowing elders to work in their life to conquer the sins that any human being in the flesh, saved by the grace of God, needs to fight. So they're in the fight about that, but they are uh, demonstrating that in holiness and devoutness. 
And then finally, uh, you see there, he needs to be disciplined or self-controlled. The exercise of discipline and self-control over harmful desires and habits that would hinder one's relationship with God and lead to a compromise to the committed care of the sheep. So what do they do? A disciplined person, someone that has self-control here, is one maintaining and mastering one's thinking and emotions. They've got control over that. And these, the, one's thoughts, one's emotions, they naturally guide the elder to avoid things that are trivial or foolish or unproductive or unspiritual. You know, could you imagine uh, Pastor Farrell getting lost in video games on Saturday night, not studying and praying for the upcoming uh, message and stumbling into the pulpit, you know, still thinking about, you know, taking out these uh, terrorists uh, in this building in the faraway land. Uh, uh, it's not that a pastor can't play video games, but you can, you can see where if you're not disciplined, and we're working on discipline, we're all working on disciplines in our life, but an elder must be disciplined. He can't get lost in pursuits that take him away from his calling. So it's, and, you know, we're talking about inordinate pursuits here. You know, I believe uh, Pastor Farrell's involved in some hunting this week. I don't know if anyone knows that that's what he's doing in Texas. Um, not sure, not even sure if it's hunting season. But anyway, um, hey, it's great to have pursuits and things, while you're, even while you're doing ministry like Pastor Farrell's doing this week. It's this inordinate pursuit where it distracts from your duties to God's church. So uh, an elder must extinguish sinful desires or even inordinate desires for those things that are even good and proper, and, and properly restrain those good desires, okay? Keep them under control, disciplined, okay? So those are uh, the various character traits, uh, family qualifications, personal qualifications, must-nots, must-haves. And again, look at those character qualifications. These are things God calls all of us to be in the body of Christ. So be encouraged to go after these things yourself. Uh, we'll talk now about um, some of the duties of a, an elder, a pastor. So let's go through those in the remaining time we have. Look there at verse 9. Here's the tasks of elders. Verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Here are additional qualifications that outline what an elder must do and he must be able to do. It's the only skill specified here. I mean, think of a leader, what you want to see in a leader. There's so many things that come to mind. Their personality and their ability to get the results and how they bring people together and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, all these lists. And here he says, you need to know the word, you know how to handle it, and you better confront others with error and teach it well. It's the handling of the word. The word, his ministry of the word, is what's given the spotlight. Not the other outward appearance things we, we tend to think of first, or we think of a great leader. We might ask yourself here, well, aren't elders supposed to lead and protect and oversee? And the answer is yes. Those are all responsibilities and the things we've talked about today and last week. But they are to do this by properly understanding and obeying and applying scriptural truth. The truth is the key. The truth's the foundation. It's the drumbeat. 
You take the truth out, and you're just, it's, you're freewheeling it. You're doing it on your own. You're not being God's man. So a godly pastor knows the word. He applies it to his own life. He practices it. He models it. And then he teaches it to the church. He applies it to the body of Christ, to those sheep that were given to his care. 1 Timothy 3, 2, that parallel passage states that an elder must have the ability to teach. The ability to teach. And you'll see there, look at verse 9 again. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught. Hold firm, hold fast, cling to, hold tightly. It's a strong devotion to God's truth. A desire to love it, to know it. They're beliefs that are deep and rooted in conviction with an exclusive loyalty to the word of God. Paul had taught Titus apostolic doctrine, and now he's being told to stay committed to it. There are truths, foundational scripture truths. There's a once-for-all delivered to the saints uh, truth, Jude 3 says. Contend for the faith that was once-for-all delivered to the saints. The elder is duty-bound to what God has said, his truth, orthodox Christian doctrine. An elder must be committed to this. They don't, they don't have the flexibility or not to be given the flexibility to make up their own truth or to go off in some other direction. It's God's truth. It's God's church, and this is what they're to be committed to. He must hold firm to these truths and reject temptations to compromise avoiding uh, interjecting their own ideas or minimizing. He must avoid minimizing or ignoring uncomfortable or unpopular truths. Teaching can't be based on market surveys or what the culture declares as important or moral for the day. As one of my pastors in a previous church said back in Ohio, the default mindset of the godly elder is what saith the scriptures. And what are they to do? Look at verse 9. He must give instruction in sound doctrine. So the elder's commitment, holding fast to God's word, is a prerequisite for sound teaching. The elder must have some level of skill in teaching. It's a requirement here. This exhortation is to come alongside and strengthen with the word. And with a plurality of elders... We see the biblical model of plurality. Some elders will be more skilled than others. You see Pastor Farrell up here routinely in the pulpit, skillfully teaching and dividing the truth. Not every elder will teach at the level of a Pastor Farrell. But they must be involved in some teaching or have that ability to teach, whether that's in a smaller setting, in a small group, in counseling, in discipling. They should be helping to explain the truth, and they have the ability to do that, to explain what God has to say. This word sound doctrine, it means healthy. This teaching must be true to the text, healthy doctrine, healthy teaching. And you know why, you know, here at Timberlake, we focus on expositional teaching. It's okay to go topical. It's okay to address certain topics in Scripture, but by and large, we... We teach that expositionally where we go verse by verse through the scriptures. You can do expositional with a topic as well, just staying true to the text. 
What are we doing? We're, 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 the, the church is focused on teaching the whole counsel of God, what God has to say, and not just what we, what we pick. So going verse by verse, I mean, who would spend all this time talking about qualifications for elders if it wasn't the next set of verses, right? Uh, this is just not something we typically camp out at, but vitally important in why we teach it. You might ask, why so much time and emphasis on teaching and sound doctrine? Can't we get on to bigger and better things? Aren't there just more exciting things we can do? They get more people in the church and, and just get involved in outreach and various things that all may have their place. But shouldn't a pastor do more? And we see here God's command. Elders are to preach the word in season, out of season, whether it's popular or not. This is their role. Ephesians 4 states that pastors and teachers are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. They equip them with the word. And they, then they do the work using their gifts and abilities to serve one another in the body. Saints are equipped by the word. You know, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is, is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good your pastors will do a disservice to you if they aren't faithful in the teaching and the careful and clear proclamation of the word. Because this is how you're equipped for Christian living. It must be word-based. Now you see another thing a, a pastor, an elder must do, going back to verse 9, uh, he must also rebuke those who contradict it, this sound teaching, this, this doctrine of scripture. So an elder's knowledge of God's word must be used to identify and recognize error. He must be a teacher, but he also must be a confronter. He must be an exhorter, but he must also identify error and address it. So an elder needs to have the skin to address error and to confront. They must confront. It's not an option. They must rebuke those who contradict the word. Crete had individuals teaching error, verses 10 and 11 there of chapter 1. And Paul instructs Titus in verse 13 of chapter 1 to rebuke them sharply. It's not like, well, just let them go, let them do their own truth. You know, they can define their own truth and teach what they want, kind of on the side, amongst your own flock. Of course not. You must rebuke them sharply. You must use the word of God to address those things that are error, to protect the sheep. A faithful shepherd must not only feed God's sheep, but he must be committed to protecting them. And therefore, they must engage in a ministry of confrontation. Who, who just loves confrontation? It's not one of those things <laughs> I aspire to do. And if you really love confrontation, you probably need to look back at your own heart. Okay, why am I loving this? Uh, but it is something you must do. We are all really responsible for that as we see people going in error or people that need the gospel. But for here, for those who are teaching error, they must be confronted by an elder. They must be in, 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 confronted by, they, they can't just allow error to propagate in the body without being checked. And, uh, you know, these kind of um, responsibilities are, are not really in vogue in the church at large today. But you see here God's requirements, and therefore um, this must be done. Now, Remember, an elder needs to use discernment, which errors to address and confront. You know, there's essentials of the faith. Whether you're talking about the, the deity of Christ or the Trinity, um, 
you know, the, very, the, the character attributes, the fundamental character of God, the purity of the gospel, you know, salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, through faith alone, the inerrancy of scripture, you know, these things have to be focused on. And as opposed to, you know, secondary items, how many times should we be, you know, celebrating communion in a month? Um, you know, the scripture is not, is not definitive on that. Now, if there's a, a body, of, a set of believers in the church, and they're perhaps leading some disunity on some of these secondary issues, well, that would need to be addressed. That's a sin issue. Um, if there's gossip or, or sinful or rebellious behavior. But just to have a different opinion on something, uh, you know, these aren't necessarily things you would address. So you have to address and focus on the right things when, you address, when an elder addresses error. So there you have it, qualifications for church leadership. Uh, you'll see here at the bottom of the second page there, ideas for further study. I encourage you to look at some of these things and be thinking and praying. Um, especially pray for your pastors. Let me just close with what you can think about doing with this information. Not only how you might apply these things to your own life, which these character traits should be, personal character traits should be something you're endeavoring to do or not to do, depending on the command there, but Hebrews 13, 17, let me read that for you. It says, speaking of uh, a flock's or a, a body of believers' responsibility to their leaders, to their elders, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What are we saying here? When your leaders speak on the authority of God's word, they do have a right to expect obedience. But what is this obedience? It is not to them. The authority is obedience, of course, to God and his word, not to men. So we submit to our leadership when the word is proclaimed or when you're reproved or rebuked or lovingly corrected and we respond to that that is submission. It's submission to God through his word that's been communicated through his under-shepherds of the flock, the elders. May God use that to help you as you pray for them, as you um, ask for them to God, for God to give them boldness, and with all these various character traits they need to maintain, ask that God would help them to do that consistently and with joy, because that would be for our good. Let's close in prayer, okay? Thank you, Father, for your word, your truth. It's so clear and concise what you require for le from leaders of your church. Lord, we love our pastors here. We love our elders, and we thank you for their walk, how they model that, and how they take so very seriously their responsibility to you and their responsibility for us, the flock. Help them to continue to serve with joy and with conviction and according to these principles, help them in areas of temptation that would draw them away. Uh, may they be wary of the, the wiles of Satan, and we just pray for their protection as they seek to protect us. And we give you the thanks in Christ's name. Amen.